Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, this day that you've given us. And Father, I just pray over this message now that, uh, that it would be everything that you would want it to be. That it would uh, bring clarity, that it would touch hearts. So I ask that you open uh, the eyes of our heart, the ears of our heart, Lord, that we hear this not so much with our physical eyes and ears, but with our spiritual eyes and ears. Be with me as I deliver this. Let it not be my message, but yours. So I ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, sounds really loud. Is that just me? It's not? Doesn't? Okay. Well, then we'll just let it alone. Good job, George. <laughs> uh, can you believe this is the last of the seven letters? It's only taken how long to get to this point? Um, but that's okay. Like we said, we're not in a hurry. So um, last week, though, we'll just kind of recap as we've been doing. We uh, were talking about the, the portion of Chapter 3 that's the letter to uh, Philadelphia. <laughs> I know, but that's okay. Um, so the big idea here was that Jesus is commending his church for their perseverance. They were being obedient and persevering like uh, they were supposed to, even under these trying circumstances, because uh, it's fairly easy to persevere when it's not bad. Um, and he's reassuring them with this promise of, uh, of eternal presence. And so uh, the, the insights that we pulled from that uh, were, first of all, that, that success is essentially determined by our obedience to Jesus, right? That's how we should be measuring success, not by what the world may tell us is success or anything else. It's based upon our obedience to what Jesus tells us. And then... Um, Secondly, to borrow uh, a lyric from a country singer from a few years ago, God is essentially saying, I beg your pardon, I never promised you a rose garden. Right? That, you know, the whole idea that um, everything's going to just be wonderful as, uh, as Christians is just not true. It's not scriptural. Right? It's never was never intended to be that way. And if you hear anybody tell you otherwise, they're a false teacher, <laughs> right? These letters clearly show us that Christians have trials, have persecutions, have hurdles in their lives. And so the whole idea, as, as uh, John has told, or as Jesus essentially through John has told church after church after church is persevere, persevere, get through it. Don't uh, expect to be just taken out of everything. So that brings us to uh, the final church in our little uh, map, the one that's uh, number seven, which is Laodicea. And uh, it's located, as you can see, it's about 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia and uh, about 100 miles east of Ephesus. So that kind of gives you some perspective as to where it is. Um, it became one of the leading cities in the whole of the Lycus River Valley. And it, it, that was due mainly um, because of its location 
um, on this, this primary Roman road. And the road ran from Ephesus um, all the way to uh, Syrian Antioch in the east. And so this was a fairly um, well-traveled road. And so, of course, the major cities um, had a lot of success as a result of all the, the people. And so um, the town of uh, Hierapolis, which was known for its hot mineral springs and white limestone cliffs, was only about eight miles to the north of the city. And then just to the south were these snow-capped mountains. But unfortunately, Laodicea had no reliable water supply of its own. So you had basically water, water everywhere and not a drop to drink, right? You had it both places. So what they had to do was they had to pipe it in. And uh, when water, no matter what temperature it begins with or begins at, has to travel over long distances, you can imagine what occurs to it. The hot water cools off and the cold water warms up. More on that later. Uh, and so in addition to sort of serving as this leading banking center because of its location, uh, the city was also well known for some of the garments that they made uh, from this really soft black wool that was uh, prominent to this area. And it was also home to a famous medical school. And this medical school specialized in the treatment of eye diseases. All right, so we're going to, this will all, you'll understand why I'm bringing this up a little bit later on. Um, this city, like a lot of the others in this whole region, was also earthquake prone. Um, and it was virtually destroyed by a massive earthquake in about the year 60, AD 60. Um, but they didn't turn to Rome to help with uh, rebuilding. They, they raised the money and they rebuilt all themselves. And so you, you would have to figure that the church in Laodicea was undoubtedly influenced by this sort of self-sufficiency that the whole town showed in this rebuilding project. And it's because of that that they receive this stern rebuke from Jesus and they don't really receive any praise. So let's look at the actual text, which is Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. Revelation 3, 14 through 22. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so you can become rich. And white clothes to wear, so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, 
I will come in and eat with that person. And they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So that's the letter. That's the final uh, portion of this series of letters that were, were written to uh, all these various churches. So let's look at this in a little more detail. So first of all, we'll look at verse 14. Those are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Um, and so, as we have seen with virtually all the letters, Jesus is identifying himself using some of the language from the very first chapter of Revelation. And in this case, he calls himself the Amen. And it probably comes from uh, Isaiah 65, 16, uh, where that term is used a couple of times in the Hebrew, meaning that he himself confirms and guarantees the message, right? So it is Jesus himself. He's speaking as this truthful, authoritative witness, uh, witness to God's ways, which sort of stand in, in sharp contrast to the unfaithful witness of this church in this town. And so he's also saying that he's not just the ruler of kings, but of the whole creation. And so while ruler can be taken somewhat temporarily as the beginning of creation, it can also be understood uh, causally as the origin or the source of creation. So that's really what Jesus seems to be saying here. He is the source of all creation. And since, um, again, in Isaiah 65, it speaks about the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, um, God's creation here points to this new creation that's begun now by Jesus. And, of course, amen is, is a, it's a familiar word. We, we say amen all the time, and we don't really even think about it. Uh, we repeat it at the close of creeds, at the end of hymns, and at the end of prayers. And it's generally understood to mean, so be it, right? It's, it's, um, however, the actual force, uh, if you look at it in terms of the theology of the Bible, is a lot stronger. It's really an oath. To say amen means to call down upon oneself the curses of the covenant. I mean, you are... It's got that kind of strength with it. And so uh, when we say amen in, in some kind of a response to God's word, it's not only an oath uh, and a recognition that our salvation is wholly dependent not upon keeping the covenant, but, but upon the perfect covenant keeping of Jesus, who placed himself under that covenant with all of its rules and stipulations and curses in our place. Amen. Amen. <laughs> all right. <coughs> Moving on to verse, uh, verses 15 and 16. It says, So I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. So because you are lukewarm, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Well, he's illustrating the problems that the church is having by using a very, an example that they would all recognize, right? This, this issue with water and what it uh, was like in that city. 
And so, you know, as I said earlier, you had Hierapolis to the north that had uh, these hot springs that were uh, used a lot for healing. Um, and then Colossae, which is to the east, had this very cold and refreshing drinking water. But Laodicea received its water uh, from a source that was about five miles away. And um, it was very rich in minerals. So you can imagine that by the time it made its way over this aqueduct uh, into Laodicea, um, it was lukewarm and probably disgusting to really drink. Um, and actually, if you go over there today, as I showed, you can see uh, there are lots of examples of those aqueducts still there um, that show how they got water into cities. And so um, what Jesus is saying here is he says, well, hot water is useful. Cold water is useful. Lukewarm water is nauseating. And so said in a, you know, in a coarse way, this apathetic complacency of the Laodicean church made Jesus want to vomit. That's really what, what he's saying here. He's saying that the church is ineffectual, which means it's good for nothing. The Laodicean church brings neither a cure for illness nor a drink to soothe the lips of parched throats. And so the sort of Christianity that's represented by this church is worthless. The church is not being called to task for its spiritual temperature. And we say we're on fire for God. Well, you can say that, but if your works don't reflect that, they're just words, right? There's a barrenness of the works of the people in this church um, that Jesus is really talking about. And so there's no commendation here. Those deeds are deserving only of this kind of tough love that, that Jesus is giving them. And so the same can be said for us in that our calling is not to blend in with our environment. You know, this has been kind of a repeated message through the course of these letters. We're not to blend in, but we're to convert it to reformat it, and to reconstruct it in terms of the whole counsel of God as is mandated in his word. To cite um, but one example of kind of a, a modern-day Laodicea, um, consider the many Bible-believing evangelical churches which would shudder at the suggestion that they are worldly or liberal which uh, continue on in their complacent lifestyle, organizing in counter groups and summer camps and completely oblivious to the murder of over 4,000 unborn infants every day. Often these churches are afraid of making um, political statements on the grounds that they might lose their tax exemptions. But whatever the excuse is, it's just that. It's an excuse. And the church is being disobedient to the word of God. If a church is not transforming its society, if it is not attempting to Christianize its culture, then what good is it? 
As Jesus said, if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Verses 17 and 18. You say, I am rich, but you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold, white clothes, and salve to put on your eyes. Now this city was proud of of three really outstanding things that were going on there. It had great wealth and financial independence because it was a banking center. It had its textile industry, which, as I said, manufactured this very fine quality, black, glossy wool. And it had a uh, pretty robust scientific community. It had a medical school there that was very prestigious. Um, but it also was known for this eye salve, which was called Phrygian powder. And this had been well known since the days of Aristotle. Okay, so. Um, Those were sort of the things that were the hallmarks of the city of Laodicea. Now, Jesus is going to make it very clear using, once again, these facts about the city to illustrate the problems going on in the church. And so you see that he's done that in every case. He's drawn on local um, either good things or bad things going on locally as a way to sort of relate them to what's going on in the church using terms that those in that city would surely understand. And although the city claims to be financially self-sufficient, the church is spiritually bankrupt. They're confusing material prosperity and comfort with spiritual health and security. And although the city serves as a banking center, the church is poor rather than rich. They need to buy from Jesus gold refined by the fire. Perhaps, again, a reference to this discipline that they need to abide by as when they're going through trials. Although the city features a profitable black wool industry, the church is shamefully naked and needs to obtain from Jesus white robes, symbols symbolic of purity and righteousness throughout the book of Revelation. Although the city is home to a leading medical school, The church is spiritually blind. They need more than the famous Phrygian powder to cure their blindness. They need the healing salve from Jesus in order to actually see their true spiritual condition. John Stott uh, said this about the church. They are beggars because they have nothing with which to purchase their forgiveness or an entry into the kingdom. They are naked because they have no clothes to fit them to stand before God. And they are blind because they have no idea either of their spiritual poverty or of their spiritual danger. And so, what does Jesus do? Well, he says this, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. See, Jesus' love means that he doesn't abandon us. When we get 
complacent and self-reliant. He doesn't just say, well, you know, I've tried. Lord knows I've tried. But I'm just done with Donna or Steve or Jim. I'm, I'm done. No, he doesn't say that. He pursues them. Even Jim. But the thing is, he pursues them with correction and discipline so that they may turn back to the only reliable source of life. And what we tend to forget is this is a characteristic of those who are true sons of God and not illegitimate children. If you're a true son of God, then you understand that this rebuke is for your own good, that it's a way to grow. If you're an illegitimate child, you just look at it as someone being mean to you, as if they don't care. And so all Christians need this kind of reproof and correction at times, some more than others. And what's important is if we heed the warning and repent and change our ways. And so even as far as this church here in Laodicea has fallen, it can still be restored. There is still hope if it will renew its obedience and become faithful to God once again. And so verse 20, here's the call. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. So what this says is if, if believers will take to heart this rebuke that they're receiving and then repent under the loving discipline of Jesus, then he promises to fully restore fellowship. Now, there's a couple of ways to look at this. And, and the text actually, if you, want, if you take it in its context, it is specifically targeting believers, okay? Because that's kind of where this is coming from as the church. This is, this is a verse that is used quite often in, a, in, in an evangelical sense, right? Kind of looking at those that are, are outside of the church. And I don't know that that's necessarily wrong but it is taking the verse somewhat out of its context, which is aimed at believers who have strayed, just as this church in Laodicea has, has strayed. And he invites them to table fellowship. And what we, what we don't always understand is this is not like asking someone to just come over for dinner. To actually sit at table fellowship in the ancient world at the time that this was written um, was reserved for intimate friends. And it conveys the depth of Jesus' desire to forgive and to reconcile. And so the people at that time would have understood it in that, in that light, that this was not just a casual, hey, let's go grab coffee. <laughs> but this is, is truly something that is very important to Jesus. 
And that attending this fellowship meal means real forgiveness. And as I was going through, uh, you know, preparing for this, I remembered something that I thought was, has always struck me. Where did it go? Hey, Jarrett, there's a painting. If you pull it out and look to the hole, you'll see a piece of art. There it is on the left. I didn't connect it. Okay. This is a pretty well-known painting, and it's by a gentleman named William Holman Hunt. And it's called The Light of the World. And it's based on this particular verse, Revelation 3.20. And I'd like to just sort of describe what's in the painting, some of which you can see and some of which may not be uh, immediately apparent unless you were to get... And that's unfortunately as large as I could make it, given that it's got a, uh, a vertical representation. I cut the top and the bottom off a little bit to make it a little bit bigger. But if you just go out on uh, and search for uh, William Holman Hunt or Hunt Light of the World on the internet, you'll be able to find it and look at it yourself. But what he has done is he's presented us with this figure of Jesus preparing to knock on this overgrown and long unopened door. And you can sort of see that uh, with the weeds and the things that are around there. And uh, it's possibly the door of our own heart or of our own mind. And if you'll notice that the door has no handle on the outside. And therefore, the only way that it can be opened is from the inside. Illustrating that we are free to keep the door of our heart locked and leave Jesus right where he is, on the doorstep. Or, if we choose, we have the power and the handle with which to open the door and to let him come in. You'll notice that Jesus approaches the door like a gentleman. He's not going to beat it down. He's not going to kick it in. He's not going to show any anger. He's not going to pass through the door as he did after his resurrection when he visited the disciples in the upper room. He does not want to impose himself against our will. On the contrary, his knocking is going to be a gentle tap. And the invitation will be reminiscent of this verse. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open, I will come, and we will sit side by side and share a meal together. <clears throat> Nonetheless, while he is a gentleman, Jesus is still an imposing figure, and there is no doubt who's in charge. He wears two crowns upon his head, the crown of glory and the crown of thorns, which is now in bloom. He takes up the whole center of the painting, his solidity and mass, stressing that he is alive forevermore, firmly and substantially waiting for the stirring of our sleeping soul. He may gently knock, but he will also knock persistently. We can't help but notice the sorrowful expression on Jesus' face. 
How long will he have to knock? Is he knocking in vain? And it's only after we kind of notice Jesus and this locked door that our attention is drawn to some of the secondary elements of the painting. The brambles that are all around this door represent the vice and the sloth which have overtaken the unkept garden of virtue because it's been neglected. Flittering around in the darkness, and this is really difficult to see, uh, but if you can get up close to it, you'll notice that there's a bat that's right above the door frame, which is always sort of a natural symbol of darkness, of ruin, of evil and neglect. You'll see that fruit has fallen to the ground and sort of lies uncared for and unattended. And the interesting thing is that by making this painting uh, at night, making it a night scene, it allowed the artist to use Christ's lamp as the primary source of light. Now, whether it's symbolic of the light of conscience or the light of the word or the light of the church, it's Jesus who holds it. And the way in which the cords of the lamp are twisted around his wrist shows the unity between the light and Christ. The lamp's rays fall gently upon the door, upon the weeds and upon the fruit. And if the door was opened, there is no doubt that the light would be a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Okay, can, if you can find 321, and that'll get us back. Is it yet? There we go. All right, well, that was weird. This, that time it went right to the painting. Oh, well. All right, verse 21. To the one who is victorious, I give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. <clears throat> and so here, the victorious are promised a share of Christ's very throne which is the symbol of his victory and his authority. And reigning with Christ in the future kingdom of God appears elsewhere as a promised reward, but it becomes more and more prominent as we will go through this book of Revelation. So with that explanation of some of these elements of the verse with us, we can turn to sort of seeing what does this really say for us? All right, that's not right. There we go. Jesus, first of all, is the only reliable source of life. In their book on how people grow, Henry Cloud and John Townsend elaborate on what the Bible says about this process. At its core is a recognition that we change not simply because we're supposed to, in other words, trying to keep this set of rules, but because Jesus is the only true source of life and he alone
can transform us. Only in Jesus will we truly find life. And so, in other words, this whole passage kind of highlights this core truth that is basic to all of spiritual growth. We must rely on God rather than ourselves. There is no life apart from him. And so I bring to show you two plants, two things out of a garden or two things out of the, the earth. One is a rose, which is beautiful. There have been, Shakespeare has written about a rose. It's beloved by almost all uh, women, love to get roses. On the other hand, I have this little green plant. Nothing really too special about it. It looks a lot like many other little green plants that you might see. It's not overly pretty. I don't think Shakespeare wrote about it. A green plant by any other name would still be a green plant. <laughs> right? So, normally we would more than likely choose this over this. But there's a problem. The problem is that this has been completely separated from its source of life. And that within a few days, all this beauty is going to be gone. And it's going to turn, you know, a, a dark color and the petals are going to fall off and, and then we'll throw it away. This, on the other hand, has life. It still is attached to its roots. And were we to take this and put it in the ground, I mean, it will grow in this pot, but it will grow even bigger once we put it in the ground. When we sort of attach it to the source of life. And so it's just the same, the same idea with Jesus. You know, we can, we can sort of look at the beauty that we see in the world, some of it which is maybe not so beautiful but is attractive nonetheless, and our tendency might be to go for that. But in the end, there's no life. Whereas what Jesus is telling us when he talks about the fact that he's the vine and we're the branches is that we need to be connected in order to flourish and in order to really have real life. Second, physical wealth and comfort can foster spiritual complacency and self-reliance. See, affluence can kind of tend to tempt us to forget about God. And quite honestly, as we've talked about, you know, evangelizing our neighborhood, I think that's largely the problem that we face. We sit here sort of at the, uh, on the cusp 
of a very affluent community, King's Charter. Lots of nice houses, lots of nice cars in the driveways of the nice houses. I'm sure there's lots of pretty people inside the houses who have good jobs and perfect children and don't need to go to the orthodontist. They're all, their teeth are perfect too. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. The point is that all too often we pour all of our energy, we pour all of our money into investments and entertainment and homes and cars and education and most of all our work. And the only time that we really seem to need God is when a tragedy strikes. I did a funeral for um, someone this week. And the family described her, and this isn't the first time that I've heard this, as someone, well, she was definitely a Christian. She just didn't think that you needed to go to church. Okay. But then when tragedy strikes, who gets the call? The church. And so this text somewhat illustrates the subtlety and the power of forgetting God or forgetting about God when we think we have everything. And I think that's why it's so hard for us to get any traction in this particular neighborhood. It's because they're affluent. It's because from the perspective of most people, pretty much have everything, right? Got the job, got the car, got the house, got the two and a half kids, got everything that, you know, the averages tell us we're supposed to have. But the thing is that the American dream and the Christian life are two fundamentally different stories about what is real and what is true. And so this text also reminds us that life consists of an awful lot more than just your material possessions. And then finally, Jesus rebukes and disciplines his children in order to heal them. And so, you know, I think in the flurry of rebuke that is part of this message, it's somewhat easy to miss out what is, is in verse 19, which offers a window into Jesus' heart. And that is that he rebukes and he disciplines because he loves. See, in our culture, love is often portrayed as nothing more than just sentimental support of another person. But when someone, um, but it really is when people don't want to hear what is in their long-term best interest, that they need someone to speak truth into their life. See, when people are hurting and they're broken and they're aware of their need for God, 
it's in those moments that Jesus speaks kindly and compassionately to them. But when people are hell-bent on self-reliance, then Jesus shocks them through rebuke and discipline so that they might recognize their need for God. And so in order to demonstrate that love is his true motive in all this, he offers this, this goal of renewed fellowship. He doesn't rebuke in order to destroy the relationship. He does it in order to make the fellowship even more intimate than it already is. I mean, for example, let's say that uh, you didn't feel well and you went to the doctor. Which would you rather have? A truly compassionate doctor who, even though you have cancer, says that, no, you just need to go take a couple of aspirin and you're going to feel fine in a few days. But he's so compassionate, he doesn't really want to hurt you by telling you the truth of what your actual diagnosis is. Because it might, it might create too much pain in your life. Or would you rather have a doctor that tells you the, the straight truth? Just as I think we would all rather have a friend that tells us the truth rather than just kind of coddles us and continues to, if not approve of, then at least tolerate our bad behavior or our destructive behavior or whatever we may be doing to ourselves that is separating us from God. Proverbs says this, a painful rebuke can demonstrate more love than silence. And then finally, Jesus waits patiently to renew fellowship with believers who come to the end of themselves and repent of their self-sufficiency. So if you read this text looking only at, at what Jesus is doing in it, you'll find a reason to hope. Because there's counsel, there's love, there's rebuke and discipline, there's standing at the door and knocking, there's coming into renewed fellowship, there is the intimacy of a table fellowship or having a meal with him. And in the end, he's giving us the right to sit on his throne. It's the same longing and waiting that we find in the parable of the, the, the prodigal son and the father who is lovingly waiting, watching until the son finally appears. So many of us today have tried to live our own lives in our own strength. And we failed miserably. And as we might become aware of our need for restoration, a lingering question sort of hangs there in our minds. And it's, does God still want a relationship with me in light of everything that I've done?
And so this image of Jesus consciously knocking on the door of a believer's life is sending such a powerful message. It says, yes, I want to renew our relationship. I've been here the whole time. If you'll just hear me knocking, and if you'll just open the door of your life to me, then I'm going to come in and I'm going to bring healing and restoration. And I couldn't really find this, but I did... uh, I think you all have enough familiarity with it that I can sort of describe what I'm, uh, what I'm going to talk about here. But if you've ever had the opportunity to have two magnets and you turn them so that their poles are opposite one another, you can't push them together. There's a force there that is, is resisting, right? And so the image of this is that that's kind of the way we are with Jesus. But if we will repent, which means to turn, then all of a sudden those two things come together. And it takes a bit of effort to pull them apart, depending on how strong the magnet is. And so that's a a kind of a mental picture for what we're talking about here. It's like, are we living like these magnets that are in opposition to one another? Or do we choose to turn so that we can then become united with Jesus. And so the big idea for our passage today is this. Jesus rebukes his church for its pathetic self-sufficiency, but exhorts them to repent and open their hearts to him for restored fellowship and to share in his victory and authority. Amen. (laughs) So we're going to have our time of communion. So I guess I would like to invite the worship team to return. And I'd like to use this time of communion uh, today to to, to further dwell on this, this passage and what it means. I think we owe ourselves from time to time to ask this question. Is this me? Am I the one who is standing on the other side of that door and refusing to open it? Am I either not hearing Jesus knocking or am I choosing to ignore that tapping sound that is him knocking on the door of our heart. And if that is you, then use this time (coughs) to surrender yourself, to say, yes, come in. I'm sorry. I want to have that restored relationship with you again. That's all it takes. And that's the beauty of the gospel. Is that it's a simple choice on our part to just say yes. And Jesus is right there, right on the other side of the door. 
waiting to come in, wanting to come in. In fact, maybe even desperate to come in. If we'll just choose to open the door.